So today, what we're actually going to be doing is uh, is finishing up our series on on judges, and uh, I hope that you would agree with me that judges has been an absolute blessing uh, to us. Uh, many of the messages have revolved around kind of what is a little bit uh, harder material in terms of, of just how how much of a struggle things in life can sometimes begin to be and how God works in the midst of those things despite us and despite the choices we make. Uh, it really kind of helps us identify who God is and, and how powerful he is uh, in the midst of how much he loves us despite us sometimes. Uh, and a lot of the messages, don't need to walk one way or the other here. Am I good? Let's move this way just in case. Um, and, and it's really been a, a blessing to me, and, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. That uh, This message today will definitely be in the same vein of that. It covers the last chapters of Judges uh, 17 through 21. Uh, and without a doubt, this part of the book of Judges is covering more of the darker parts of the book. We're only going to cover a short portion of it today in a part of chapter 17. But I encourage you to go on your own and to read the last five chapters of Judges with consideration of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and so it can really help you identify the depth of what's going on here in these last five chapters um, and I want to prep you that though we're talking about some, some harder things today, um, I pray that we also see God at work in a way that though it, it might be bitter for us at first, it could also produce and leave us with a, a sweet taste on, on the palate of our heart. On the palate of our spirit, it could leave us in, encouraged and assured about who God is. Because I think that's what his aim is in the midst of, of kind of documenting some of these things. So we're going to start in, uh, in Acts chapter 17 today. Acts chapter 17. And if you would stand with me in honor of God's word, we're going to start in uh, chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to go through verse 6. Uh, if there's a few more verses up there, don't mind those. I kind of pulled an audible on the guys in the back, and, and my bad. Uh, but starting in verse 1, uh, Acts, I mean, Judges 17 says, There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. I know about y'all, but when I stole from my mama, that was never the response. That, anyway... Um, and he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons to become his priest. This is verse six. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You may be seated as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that you document both hard and beautiful things. 
to show you how, show who you are in the midst of both. Ask you would open our hearts and open our minds to receive what you have for us today. We love you. We thank you. We surrender this time to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, we're starting with, with Micah here in, in Judges chapter 17. And we don't know a lot about Micah. What we know as far as his origins and the context of his life is pretty much found in these few verses in Judges chapter 17. Now, from these few verses, we can derive a few things. Being that he is in the book of Judges, we know that first off, he is a Hebrew man. He's Jewish. Uh, That is his nationality, ethnicity, his country of origin. Uh, Now, or it's people. Now, the other thing that we can derive here is that he came from a a good family, a strong family. He more than likely came from a wealthy family. Um, 1,100 pieces of silver here is not chump change by any means. Uh, In fact, it kind of reflects that they probably were a little bit well off. And the fact that when he gave it back to his mother, his mother just threw it back like, eh, just keep it. That means they probably had something else sitting in the bank somewhere. That was, a, that was a pretty good chunk of change. So socio, their socioeconomic status was probably that uh, where they were a little bit, if not maybe a little bit further, above par, above average. And one of the last things we can derive from his origin from these verses is his name. His name actually means who is like the Lord. So what we can understand is that his family was wealthy, uh, at least moderately, and he came from a strong family. But also at the time of his naming, they were following Yahweh. They were following the Lord. Uh, Enough to make his name this declarative statement of of who is like our God. So he came from a family that seemed to be pretty wealthy. He came from overall a pretty good situation. I mean, if if you think about it, he came from a good spot. Now, when we jump forward and we view Micah's life now, it's it's not quite quite the same. Um, Where we find Micah now is first and foremost, a man stole from his mama. Not cool, all right? Not, not okay. So first and foremost, you're stealing from your mama, you're automatically getting an X in my book. I've stole from my mama, it hurt her feelings. And even when he returned the money, even when he returned the money, he didn't return it out of some kind, some kind of righteous uh, conviction where he said, man, I stole from my mom, this isn't a good thing, I need to give it back. No, the actual uh, result and the actual reason was this kind of selfish, self uh, provision, right? He, he, he heard his mom utter this curse. His, the Bible says that he actually, the mother actually kind of whispered it in his ear a little bit. It says that he told it in his ear. I like to think of that as a little mother's intuition there. Maybe she had a good idea about who might have dipped into the purse while she wasn't looking, but um, he returns it out of more of a, a selfish self-provision. And that's where the story turns its eye to Micah's mother. Uh, Micah's mother, what we have garnered so far from the story, at least at one point, did follow the Lord, right? She named her son uh, this beautiful declarative name about the Lord. But where we find her now is not faring too, too much better than Micah. She dedicates the silver to carved images and metal images. And even when she says she's going to deliver the 1,100 pieces of silver back to Micah, she only gives him 200. I'm, I'm no mathematician by any means, but basic arithmetic I can do. And if uh, my mother said she was going to give me 1,100 and she gave me 200, I, I would have a pretty good idea that there was 900 floating around somewhere that is not in my possession. And I don't know where it's at, but it, it, I don't have it. 
So his mother kind of shows some shadiness there, even in that. Now, regardless of their religious beliefs, of their spiritual condition, regardless of their socioeconomic status, in reality, what we end up seeing is that between the two of them, Micah and his mother, they are breaking three of the Ten Commandments that their people were called to live by. When we look at the story of Micah and his mom, we actually see that they're, regardless of where they're coming from and their origins, their present condition is that Micah is stealing, that's, that's one of them, dishonoring his mom, so he kind of two birds with one stone on the stealing from his mom part and dishonoring his mom and stealing something. And then his mom comes back, well, both of them together, and they end up kind of giving this silver over to be made into carved images and metal images. Now, we don't know if this is necessarily saying that these carved images were carved images to other gods. We don't know that. We can't say that for sure. What we do know is that the climate culturally in, uh, amongst the Israelites during that time was that many of them were drifting away from the Lord and they were going to pursue and worship other gods. Now, regardless if it was or wasn't, the commandment from the Lord was that he's not, we're not to make carved images. He's these Israelites weren't to do that because even if they had made uh, a, a statue that, that was a lamb that was supposed to represent God or, or a lion that was supposed to represent God, if one represented his power and one represented his grace, they both failed to represent who he is at large. All of them would fail to really show the depth of who God is. And so in that, God instructed the Israelites, don't, don't make images that represent me. There would be an image later that showed the full representation of who God is. But that was Jesus. So what we end up needing now is not carved images to God. So regardless of if they're worshiping foreign gods or if they're worshiping the Lord, Micah's mother and Micah are showing their disobedience in pursuing what they feel is right. Whether they're worshiping God or whether they're worshiping foreign gods, They're showing their own disobedience and doing it in a way that fits them. Now, after this, what we end up seeing is that Micah installs the gods in his house. He makes a shrine. He ordains his son uh, to be his priest. And then later we find out that there is a traveling Levite uh, that Micah finds and then, then ordains as his priest as well. And at this moment, Micah began to say, man, I've, I've done a lot of bad, but I know that God's going to favor me now because I have a Levite priest. And he was referencing back to the fact that Mosaic law said there was a Levite person, that's kind of like their, their clan, where they're coming from, their people, that they were set aside to be priests. So even though he got a lot of things wrong, Micah was like, but I got one right. And I feel like God's going to give me credit for this one thing. Well, this entire section of scripture kind of pinnacles, it, it climaxes at verse 6. In verse 6, uh, I'm going to read it again for you. It says that in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, Judges uses this uh, refrain or this, this repeated phrase to kind of connect the two sections of Judges that we're talking about. The first 16 chapters, which is what we've gone over for the past few weeks, uh, judges, the author of Judges uses this text and this phrase to kind of connect these last five and these prior 16. Because the first 16 chapters communicated this idea of in those days there was no king and everyone did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Starting in chapter 17, the author begins to say, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And yes, the intention was to make a parallel between them saying that what's doing what's right in your own eyes is doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. But I don't think it's that easy. It's not, it's not, it's not quite as simple as just kind of casting a blanket on it like that. We have to pay attention to the first part of that, which is in those days there was no king. This is where we kind of get to understand a little bit of judges' placement in the Bible. Judges was kind of placed there to kind of prelude and, and look forward to the earthly kings that Israel uh, was going to have in, in Saul and in David. But there's a bit of a, a contradiction found in this statement if we look backwards as well, because a few generations before, in Deuteronomy 33.5, this is while Moses was still alive, the Bible says that the Lord became king of Israel at Jeshurun. That was just a city. Now, if, if Deuteronomy 33.5 says that there was, I mean, that, that the Lord had become king, and during this time in Judges, the Bible is now saying that there, there was no king. I, I highly doubt that it was God that said, I don't, I don't want to be king anymore. That more than likely is not what happened. You see, the difference that the author of Judges is trying to display here in these two phrases is that Israel had removed God from his rightful place as king over Israel and king of their individual hearts and lives. They begin to no longer be led by their devotion to the Lord as king, but by their own choices and their own morality, removing him from his rightful place in their life. And that was evil. That is evil. But if we take a step back, we kind of have the story of Micah, and then we take a little bird's eye view of the, the entire story of Judges and how that fits in, in that time period. And then if we take one more step back, we're at like astronaut level now. You know, we're pretty high, getting a pretty good view of things. We're, we're able to see that this isn't an affliction that is exclusive to Israel or even exclusive to the time of Judges. If we look back since the dawn of man's creation, then the temptation and eventual act of removing God as our king has been the root of mankind's separation from God from the very beginning, from the very start. If we go back to the, the Garden of Eden, right, the first three chapters of Genesis, we see this exchange take place between Eve and the serpent. For any of you uh, aspiring miniature theologians, like I'm, I'm trying to be of the smallest stature, um, you can answer me a question, which is, what, what is, is the serpent's argument to Eve, Eve, make me your king, make me your God? No, no, that's not what it is. He hasn't come as blatantly to say that. He begins to question God's authority. He begins to question God's words. He begins to distort the truth that God had given to Eve. And in that moment, these seeds of doubt begin to enter Eve's mind. Is God telling the truth? Is he good? Can I trust what he says? Or am I probably maybe a better decision maker regarding my life than he is? 
You see, Eve starts the inward process of removing God from his rightful place as king of her heart and king of her life, eventually resulting in the outward action of disobeying God and thus submitting herself to evil. Graham Goldsworthy is a brilliant Australian uh, theologian. He's written a multitude of incredible books. Uh, in, in one of them, according to plan, he writes it like this. Um, the final effect was the same as if they had installed Satan as Lord, but it is achieved without the humans realizing it. They rebel against God, not by consciously making Satan their new final authority, but by taking that function to themselves. The truth of any proposition would from this point onward be tested by what was in humans themselves. In reality, God had made Adam and Eve moral creatures. Everyone in here has this, this subtle understanding, some a little varied than others, of what right and wrong is. And in the same way, Adam and Eve were made to have that same understanding. They were going to get to it by one of two ways. One, they would understand the goodness of God and righteousness through obeying his commands, submitting to his authority, and staying and experiencing perfect fellowship with God, understanding what evil was by resisting it and seeing it take place somewhere else. Or they would understand evil by removing God as their king, judging life by their own understanding, by their own seeing, by their own judgment, and making themselves their own God, and thus submitting themselves to evil. Those of you guys that have read the first three chapters of the entire book know the answer was they chose the latter. They chose the removal of God as his rightful place, as their king, and subjecting themselves to evil. And the same subjection to evil, the same proclivity to kind of make ourselves our own God, would trickle down from generation to generation to generation, right on down to the early church. Uh, I want you guys to, to turn with me or just look up at the screen. We're going to go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Which, by the way, this morning as I was getting ready, the Bible app let me know was the verse of the day. Uh, verse 11 and 12. But we're reading through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great and of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now I want to take some time, and if you could leave. Um, the previous slide up here, the first part. I want to take some time to kind of highlight a couple of words here. Highlight a couple of words here that, that are going to give us some indication about the eerie and, and coincident, maybe not so coincidental similarities in these two groups of people. Um, one of the words that I want to highlight for us is in 
verse 12, ungodliness right there after renounce. Ungodliness. And the Greek word that this comes from, that it's translated from, is asebaya. And what that literally means is one who is in need of reverence toward God. One who is in need of the reverence that God deserves and the reverence that God requires. Uh, earlier we sang a beautiful song, it was Jesus at the, at the center of it all. And that's not done by our own choosing. That just means that he is there. The Bible says that he holds everything by his will. Everything that we have, the, the, the very earth in its existence, it's all set there by his desires, by his word. So when we say that God requires reverence, it's not saying that at some point in time, God's going to say, oh man, you chose something else. It's okay. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that that was better. I, I didn't know that I didn't offer that. No, he's his primary offering. He's the goodness that we desire. He's the satisfaction that we need. So when, he, when we're saying here that the reverence that God requires, it means that everyone will inevitably give him that reverence. But these individuals were lacking that reverence that God needed and that God uh, deserved. The other word is verse 14 on the bottom. It's lawlessness from all lawlessness. And the Greek word that this is uh, translated from is anomia. And what that literally means is a person who is ignorant of, who is resistant toward, or is downright contemptuous toward law, toward authority, toward order. That's extraordinary. Genesis takes place here. Titus is here from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. We see the glaring similarity that this lack of reverence for who God is, this lack of reverence for God's authority in our life produces this lawlessness and resistance toward authority, toward order, The very same thing that was plaguing Eve in the garden, the very same seeds of doubt regarding who God is and, and his goodness in her life, is the very same thing that's plaguing the individuals and, and maybe even the early church in Crete, where Titus was, where the book of Titus was written to. And you see, at this point, what I hope we're putting together is that what Micah didn't understand, and what Micah's mom didn't understand, and what his priest's son didn't understand, and what the Levite priest didn't understand is that they weren't dealing with merely some uh, cultural fad that was to remove God from his rightful place in their life. It wasn't just kind of what was happening during the times, and so people were getting swept up in it. It wasn't that the Israelites began to see people next to them and say, oh man, that guy looks like he's having a lot of fun. I want to I go do that. No, they were wrestling with the root sin that separates man and God from the beginning of time until the end of time. Man's desire, our desire, to be our own God, to be our own authority, to be our own judge. And the removal of God from that rightful and beautiful place 
that he created us to be in. If I'm, if I'm honest, I can easily, easily relate to Micah and to Micah's mom and, and to everyone else in the story. I can easily relate to Eve. I can easily relate to these believers in Crete because if I'm honest, this is my story. This grave mistake is, is in my story. This is my own life, for me speaking personally. I, uh, I grew up in church, right? I grew up in church. My dad is a pastor in Luling, so down that way. And um, I grew up uh, reading the Bible. Like, my bedtime stories were Bible stories. And I don't mean, like, the cool, like, colorful book ones. I mean, like, from this with all the vows and the arts and like all the, all the stuff that's hard to understand, that's what I got like every night. When I couldn't sleep, it was like straight up David and Goliath. With, but like I said, it, anyway. Um, so I grew up kind of reading that, that, that part of the Bible and that kind of got poured into me by my family in a very real way. And my dad instructed me in these, these kind of ways of, of trying to understand the Bible as best as I could at a young age. And so I had a very hands-off understanding of some theology and some doctrine and some things that um, people talked about at church. And of course, speaking of church, I went to church. I went to church all the time. There was a, a running joke in my family that you, in our family, you're born and like three days later, you're in church. Like you, you, are, you are hid under a blanket. You're like thrown in the back if you're crying, but you're fitting to be there. Like you are going to be there. You don't miss a Wednesday. You don't miss a Sunday. You don't miss any of that, man. If it's flooding, you swim. If it's a tornado, you just you put some weights on you and you just try to get there. And if the tornado sweeps you away, then you were going to church. So God got to give you credit for that, right? Like, man, if you meet your demise going to church in a tornado, then God's going to be like, he's going to give you that, that meme of Jesus giving the thumbs up. That's gonna, what you're going to get in heaven, right? That's how we felt. That was the culture that I came from. Um, and in my own mind, I think what, what really kind of came from that was that I began to... to to know that I could get by with being better than the next guy. So if this guy was doing okay, uh, if this guy wasn't doing that okay, then I know I can, I can do better than him. I'm doing better than that guy, and I'm doing better than this guy. And, and this girl up here, um, well, she's just doing exponentially better than me. I'm not even going to try to be as good as she is. But that guy, I know that I should be doing better than him. So I'm going to go to my my little moral checklist that I made from church, and I'm going to start checking off what I do and what I don't do. And then I'm going to find what I don't do, and I'm going to check that one off so that now I know I can be on par with the guy that I should have been on par with. Now we're kind of on an even playing field, so I feel, feel pretty good about myself again. And what I thought was that I was okay replacing an intimate, dependent relationship with a Savior I thought it was okay replacing that with a Bible-based morality. I thought it was okay hearing these lessons at church, hearing them and say, okay, now I, I know how God wants me to live. Now it's my responsibility to go out and make these good decisions on my own. I, I can go out and save myself through how I'm getting taught to live when I go into church. I, I, I figured I could come in and, and say a prayer and, and say I accept Jesus. And, and what that meant was that now I promise to live my life differently. It, it doesn't mean that I enter into intimate and dependent relationship with Jesus for him to forgive my sins. It just means that I accept that I'm going to change my life through how I make decisions 
And that's what, what so many of us do. We come to church thinking those same things. We come to church thinking those same things. That's why some of us can come to church and, and feel like we're getting our lives back on the right track and we feel comfortable here. So when, as long as we're making good decisions, then man, I want to go to church. I want to be in growth group. I want to hang out with people from the church. I, I feel good about that because I know I don't got nothing to hide. I'm, I'm feeling well, feeling good. But in the moment we make a bad decision, that we begin to step away, go, oh man, well, you understand, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't fit into the church now because I'm imperfect. And now I, I don't fit in the church because I've made some choices that, that, that I'm uncomfortable with and I don't want to share them. So I'm not going to go to growth group. I'm going to go ahead and just, you know, Sunday fun day today. It's, it's an okay thing, you know, once in a while, it's all right. And I'm going to take a few steps back. Take a few steps back and... and not what it's about. It's not about us coming here and making this decision to make more decisions about how we can save ourselves through our better choices. It's about surrendering ourselves to this person who's already done it for us. He's already saved us. There's no part in me that saves me. And that's where I was. I was in a place where I, I, was, I was making every attempt that I could to make myself feel good about myself through my own Bible-based morality. Until one day, I was 18 years old, and I made the compromising decision of uh, smoking some regular old Mary Jane. It was just one compromising decision. After six years of not doing so, I was culturally, I was, I was in school, I was a part of the little thug, the little, the little thug group. And uh, so because of that, at 11 years old, a lot of those things were already readily available to me. So I smoked and tried for the first time when I was 11. And by the grace of God, my parents saw that going on and they pulled me away from that. They, they withdrew me from the school. They cut off a lot of those bad influences. By the grace of God, I was abstaining from that practice for at least six or seven years now. And at 18, I was going through, through 18-year-old girl trouble. And anyone knows 18-year-old girl trouble knows that it is the most dramatic, just blown out of proportion thing you could possibly imagine. It is a soap opera on steroids. And uh, sure enough, I specifically remember one of my friends going, hey, man, let's take your mind off of it. And I'm not trying to do like a peer pressure ad here. It's just the way it went. So it, he's like, hey, man, let's take your mind off. So I, I do it. And that one compromising decision led to, uh, hey, I'll smoke once a week with my friends. So I'll smoke twice a week. So I'll smoke five times a week. So I'll smoke every day. So I'll smoke a couple of times a day. So I'll smoke five times a day. So I'll smoke just in the morning, in between class, at lunch, before I eat, after I eat. You know, it, it was just so insane. The, the, I got swept up into it. And if a friend says, hey, man, like, I didn't, uh, can you just take this over to so-and-so? You know, he bought it. You don't got to touch no money, but can you just kind of transport that? Yeah, I can, I can do that. I can take care of that for you. I didn't take any money, so I'm not breaking the law or anything. And those compromising decisions gave way to me desiring, above everything else, my own carnal desires. So from there, uh, it became more important to me that I pursue the things that I felt I needed. So I began to look at things like porn, and then from there I began to objectify women. And so then I start pursuing women based on how I view them from that. And when I all the while over here, my parents are kind of 
you know, my parents have always been this anchor that draws me back to Jesus. And I, I really don't want that right now because I know the, the best thing for me right now is that, you know, I get these things that I'm going after. So I kind of start separating myself from them because I don't want them to pull me back into the whole Jesus deal because I'm after what I'm after. I'm after what I need right now. And over time, the hurts began to pile up. The shame began to pile up. And with every girl that hurt me, with every disappointing look from my parents, with every failed class, with every disappointing shift at work, it piled up till I was a shell of the young man I had been maybe two years ago, if that. And one day I just felt like it imploded on me. It imploded because I was empty. There was nothing inside. I had nothing left. So the weight of my own decisions, the weight of my choices, the weight of my shame, my regret just imploded. And I remember during that same time I was attending church services, because like I said, man, I came from a culture where you went to church. I could have been high. I could have been hungover. I might have still been drunk, but I was there. That's just the way it went. And I would finish playing my instrument. I maybe played the piano or played the guitar that day. And then I would get down from the stage. And I specifically remember I would go and I would sit down and I would just weep every single service. It could have been talking about offering. It could have been talking about prayer requests, about missionaries. I would sit right in the back to the middle and I would just weep the entire time. I didn't really know what anyone, if anyone was looking at me. I didn't care. I just needed to cry. And during those times, I specifically remember these impressions being pushed on my heart that even in the midst of what was going on, in the midst of my emptiness, in the midst of those troubling times for me, in the midst of my own choices, I felt this strong impression that Jesus still loved me. I didn't know how, I didn't know why, I didn't know how, but I just knew and understood that he still loved me. And most of the time after these moments, I would just kind of shake it off. I would stop crying. I would kind of get my bearings about me, and I'd just walk out the door. And I'd go back to, to living a life where I was striving and trying to make a little bit better choice that day than I did the day before. Until one day, I remember I was driving down the road, and uh, I don't know what had happened that day. I can't specifically remember. I must have gotten into a fight with somebody, a loved one or something like that, and I just felt the burden of my life on me so heavy. I just felt the weight of the world on my shoulders, the weight of my own choices, the weight of my own life, the weight of my own regret, my own shame. And, and I specifically remember thinking I, I didn't know what I needed to do. So I went to my, my dad's church. It was the church I was at at the time. And I had a key and I unlocked it and I opened the door and I went and I put a song on. And I remember it coming down to it wasn't even like special. It wasn't even like the front or like right at the altar. It was just in a chair, like in that area. And uh, the middle section, I remember just sitting there, and I just broke down. And I just broke down, and for the first time in years, I knew that I was surrendered and bare before God in that moment. And I just started saying, God, take this from me. Take the regret, take the frustration, take the anger, take it from me. I repent of all of it. I'm sorry I'm here. I don't know how I got here, but I just need you to take this from me because I don't know where else to go and I don't know what else to do. When I think I'm doing something better, it turns into something worse. Just please take it from me. 
And he was faithful to take it from me, to meet me right there where I was. He was faithful to meet me with love and mercy and to take from me the weight that shouldn't have ever have been mine. And if we're being honest today, if we're being honest, I've tried to be honest with you guys, if you're willing to be honest with me, with yourself maybe, uh, we've all been there. We all know that feeling to varying degrees. We all know what it feels like for our own autonomy to kind of pierce our heart and in a moment we think, oh, I, I hate that. I wish that never would have happened. I shouldn't have done that. We all know those feelings. We've all felt the weight of our life and of regret and of shame and, and our choices and, and we felt ourselves buckle underneath it. We've all experienced that. And in those moments, friends, the answer isn't to go and make better decisions. The answer isn't to solve it by making a better choice for myself. The answer isn't for me to get myself out of it. That's not the answer. We don't need a, a moral system of redemption where we're saving ourselves through the decisions that we make. That's not what we need. I encourage you to make good decisions, but that's not the solution. We need a savior. We need a loving God that seeing our condition, seeing that we were in a hole we could not dig ourselves out of, lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died and now redeems every bit of regret, every bit of hurt, every bit of shame and is willing to relieve us of the divine responsibility that was never ours to have in the first place. Today, my prayer in here is that if you feel some of that, if you feel some of that, the answer that you arrive at is not to walk out the door with some kind of life lesson that you want to go and make a change on your own, that you want to go and kind of make some better choices. My prayer is that you would walk toward Jesus and surrender your life, your choices, your regret, your shame to him. It's a freeing, redeeming, and forgiving love. There's no disappointment there. There's no anger there. It's merely a loving father seeing the condition of his precious children and doing for them what they could not do on their own. We can't redeem ourselves through our actions. We need him, and he's willing to freely give himself for us. Today, if you've felt the weight of your life, the weight of your decisions, the weight of your shame, of your hurt, if you've felt that and you know that I've never come to a place where I've exchanged that weight, exchanged it for the freedom that's found in Christ and his love and his redeeming work at the cross, if you're in that place today, I don't urge you to walk out of this place. Come to him without coming to him. I urge you not to walk out without coming to him. He wants to free you from yourself. He wants to free you from the 
self-imposed many times. Many times self-imposed, and other times not so much. But he wants to free you from those bondages and those hurts that you've been carrying around for a little bit. Come to him. On the, on the flip side, today, if you've been walking with Christ for, for a period of time, if you've been walking with Christ and you begin to know, like, I, I know that God's good. He's come through for me a couple of times. Man, there was a couple of times that I've said some prayers and some crazy things happened. That's good. But you also can look at yourself and say, but there is a part of me that's been withdrawing parts of my heart from him. That life has come to a place where I just need a little bit more control. I need a little bit more of my life in my own hands so that I can look and say, now I just need to control the outcome here. I just need to to see where this is going. So I want control of my life back. I don't want to kind of do this surrender thing. I don't want to do this part where I'm trusting God. I don't want to do this part where uh, my decisions are are kind of based on on what his desire for me is or based on what he is doing in my life. I need that back a little bit. And you can identify that you're in that dangerous place a withdrawing part of yourself from God as your king and as your father. Come to him. Surrender those parts back to him. He hasn't left you because of that by any means. He's awaiting you as his precious child. Come to him. Today I hope that we can really grip that place of surrender to God. The fact that in his love, he desires not to see us beat ourselves up by trying to save and redeem ourselves through our choices, but that he's given out of his overwhelming love the freedom to be set free from ourselves, from our choices, from our hurts, from our bondages, through who he is. If, uh, if there's anybody on a, on a prayer team, if you guys could come up, I just want to pray together. And if at the end of that prayer you have anything that you need to work out with the Lord, I encourage you to come up and speak to one of the individuals. That'll be up here at the end of that prayer time. If you'd bow your head, Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you that even though our habit is to make ourselves our own God. Our habit is to try to take that role from you and control it by our own thoughts, our own judgment, our own decisions. The reality is that you saw us there. You saw us digging ourselves deeper down, thinking we were moving up. And you met us there by living the life that we should have lived and by dying the death we should have died, by giving yourself on the cross and resurrecting from the grave. Father, I ask that if there's any individual here that has felt that weight at any point in their life, if it is a weight that is evident at this time or if it's a weight that they've experienced before and they know that their heart is not completely given to you, surrendered to you, then I ask that you would place it on their heart to move towards you now, to take the steps of moving toward you by praying with someone else, by uh, exchanging and, and talking about what's going on in their lives, in their mind, and in their heart. We place this room in these 
people in your hands, God, asking that you would be with us, guiding us, not singularly in our actions, but that you would reclaim your place as the king of our lives and the king of our hearts as the desire of our passions, the the object of our affections. Love you. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So uh, most of the announcements were mentioned a little bit earlier, so we don't need need to go through some of those. Uh, But again, if you have anything on your heart that you want to talk to, feel free to come up and pray with some of the guys up here. I'll be up here myself. Uh, And until then, God bless you. We love you. Uh, We're dismissed.